This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Origins. Wong Fai Hung. Prism. And Carl Maria Villagut. on the vocal cords of one of our participants, undoubtedly caused by a combination of late-night conversation and gin and tonics, tells us that we have once more entered the parameters of the travel advisory, and this week Ken is going to tell us all about his exciting time at the Origins Game Convention in beautiful downtown Columbus, Ohio. Uh, Those of you who know your conventions know, of course, that Origins has always been the second biggest North American hobby game convention. It's the Casey Affleck to Gen Con's uh, Ben Affleck, the Sanjuro to Gen Con's Yojimbo, the Mets to its Yankees, but is nonetheless a cornucopia of gaming fun and gossip. And therefore, uh, Ken, what did you glean about the suddenly arrived or upcoming gaming hotness while you were at Origins? Well, the uh, the game that apparently was being the best-received game of the show at Origins was a game called Quicksilver, which was developed by a couple of fellow Chicagoans at Split Second Games, and they built a Zeppelin racing game with a hex board and uh, one assumes mappable and movable terrain and all manner of other fun and little Zeppelins you, you fly around. And it uh, did a bang-up job. It was their first origin, so it was kind of fun to see the madness through their eyes. That was great uh, delight. Uh, the Shadowrun 5th edition uh, bowed to huge acclaim at Catalyst, uh, so that seems to be uh, doing well. And uh, Monster Hearts, although it did not get the coveted Origins Award, did get the coveted lots of sales at the IPR booth. So I think that that is sort of the indie uh, gaming flavor of the moment, uh, along with, of course, Dungeon World, a testament to Vincent Baker's underlying Apocalypse World mechanic, which uh, Monster Hearts also uses. There was also um, some uh, war games out there for sale. I didn't see any specific ones that sort of blew me away. There's a there's a couple of 1812 war games, both of which have, have got fairly good uh, reviews. I think that it's because of the, the Bicentennial uh, coming up. Um, so, so, folks, I wasn't kidding earlier when I uh, discussed the uh, effects on Ken's vocal cords, so please bear with us for the uh, post-convention episode. But this gives you the documentary realism of the suffering that Ken has gone through and is currently going through to bring you this podcast. Just, just for you, beloved podcast <laughs> listeners. Although I note that um, the uh, parallel Ken height that appears in Matt Forbeck's uh, Dangerous Games trilogy, the one who drinks gin and tonics, is apparently the one who is uh, delivering this uh, this update, because uh, the other Ken Height, the one who writes all of your favorite role-playing game supplements, drinks vodka tonics. Useful information uh, for those we, we stand corrected. wishing to buy me a beverage. So if you see a, a Ken Height, the two Ken Heights together, each of whom drinking their different beverages, which I guess you'd have to sort of smell in order to know which one, which one do you... Hit with the shuffle. Uh, I think you hit the parallel universe Ken Height, the the, the Matt Forbeck uh, universe Ken Height, because if you take him out, then probably there won't be a series of savage killings at your game convention. There we go. Okay, so uh, we were uh, giving a roundup of all the various uh, hotnesses, and uh, so uh, were there things that you would award the spontaneous Ken Height award to that will allow people to later describe themselves as award-winning? Were there things that you... Uh, played or thought were especially cool or innovative other than the ones that we've uh, mentioned so far? Well, I played Monster Hearts, which I wanted to play for a couple of reasons. First, because I wanted to play a uh, Star World or Asterisk World, depending on what you call it, mechanics-based game. And also because as a lead designer on Bubblegum Shoe, I wanted to see how it handled the sort of uh, high school social uh, boiler system or social boiler environment that uh, Bubblegum Shoe will be defaulting to, and I wanted to sort of see how uh, Joe McDonald handled uh, interpersonal mechanics and, and get a feel for that. So for me, uh, I, usually when I go to Origins, I have one game that I want to play, and sometimes it's a new game, and sometimes it's a it's an older game. A couple of years ago, I just wanted to go play um, uh, the Invasion of Malta game that Avalon Hill did a long time ago. This time I wanted to play Monster Hearts, which was uh, new and sexy and had a... Uh, 
an Origins Award nomination, which is always very nice to see for a for an indie game. And then that was that was sort of my focus. I, I wanted to play that and test out how that felt. And indeed, it felt very good. I think that the the sort of um, it, it doesn't uh, really move out past the uh, the apocalypse world game space as as much as you might think. And for those who haven't played that, how would you characterize what the apocalypse world game space is? The apocalypse world game space is, is based on, on apocalypse world designed by uh, Vincent Baker. Uh, apocalypse world is a game set in the sort of consensus post-apocalypse. The apocalypse is left vaguely defined. Uh, it can come to def- definition at some point during the campaign. The game space is one in which only the player characters roll dice. They have a number of set moves that they do. Those moves generally six, you roll two dice, you add your stat. The, uh, the two dice, um, if, if your total, uh, is between seven and nine, you succeed with a, some sort of bad effect or some sort of complication. If it's 10 or above, you succeed gloriously. And then the GM never rolls. The GM just narrates what happens, usually as a result of your, of your making moves. And there's a number of, uh, possibilities in, in that, uh, the way that Vincent wrote it, it's sort of a PM to the character class because your character class, is, the moves, which are sort of a combination of character skills and feats, define your character, and it's an examination of how character class can drive role-playing and can drive storytelling and adventure. And then Monster Hearts, your character... Sorry, and, and the defining slash controversial thing about it is the extent to which it constrains uh, you and defines very specifically what the experience is, and it's not giving you a... Uh, any way you could play this is the right way to play it. It gives you a very specific way to play, that that is the, the technology of this game is not just the way the rules are set up, but the way that you are supposed to employ the rules to create the play style. Yeah, the Vincent is very much uh, aiming, and with Apocalypse World at, a, at a one specific flavor, uh, Dungeon World by Sage Latora uh, is another very popular iteration of that, and again is trying to... Uh, drive directly for sort of uh, old-school D&D, uh, high-character mortality feel. Uh, so it's not as uh, welcoming to people who came up in the later D&Ds with the uh, bouncier hit points and plentiful refreshes and things. And then Monster Hearts is very much driving toward some sort of emotional breakdown. Uh, your, your characters have what they call their darkest self, and once a certain criteria is reached, sometimes on the basis of a die roll, you enter your darkest self and are therefore basically wrecking everything, including your life, for the sake of the story. And so, as is common for a lot of really great key indie games, it is not creating a giant toolkit that you can do a whole range of things with, but is zeroing in on a very particular experience that it wants to deliver for you. Right, yeah. Monster Hearts especially is very, very targeted and focused. I think Dungeon World is more open just because the the genre itself is more open of of dungeon fantasy, um, but uh, Monster Hearts is very targeted. the uh, The real variety comes when you choose what skins uh, or or character classes you have. So you can be a vampire or a ghoul or a fairy or a. We in our game we had a snake person, a uh, <laughs> a, a, a hollow a hollow man, which is to say an uplifted construct, artificial person. Uh, that was Jared Sorensen playing the uplifted cuttlefish. Um, I played the witch, and uh, another uh, girl played uh, the fairy, and uh, Nathan Paletta played a snake man. So it was it was a pretty great uh, mix of characters. But what that means is the then the other uh, sort of the antagonists have to sort of riff off that. So the witch that made Jared's character was a possible antagonist. There was another witch who was building a Frankenstein. So that's sort of the character decision sort of set the level of of of, um, uh, of opposition as well. It's very much uh, your character class still drives it, even in Monster Hearts. And so did you uh, gain insights of things to uh, uh, steal or not steal for Bubblegum Shoe? What uh, Monster Hearts convinced me was that I'd already done the right thing in Bubblegum Shoe, that uh, the system of strings that he has works well tactically, but does not work well uh, over a long campaign, which is what Bubblegum Shoe is more intended to indicate, is that your mysteries take place against a larger story arc. And so uh, the system of relationship pools that we have in Bubblegum Shoe, I think, is going to be more robust over a longer arc than Monster Hearts. Although I should emphasize we only played one session of Monster Hearts, and I think Monster Hearts itself demands at least two sessions to come into its full flowering, just because one session is going to be spent building up all the character interrelations that you want to tag for the denouement. 
And so it interests me the question of how you present in a convention environment a game that is supposed to thrive uh, in a slightly extended mode, for example, here in two sessions or the broader number of sessions that you expect from uh, a lot of gumshoe designs or a drama system. So, And I've gone back and forth, for example, about the way that I present a drama system to people in one session play. How much did that game of Monster Hearts address that issue, or did it just sort of proceed as a normal first session, or was he doing things to collapse it more to highlight more of a convention experience? She, it was Kira Scott that ran it, who was sort of an alpha Monster Hearts game master. Uh, she ran it just as sort of a standard convention scenario where people don't know the system. Everyone sort of does their character creation together, and then she bases the story on our characters as created. She comes back and sort of one of the things, like I say, since the, the game engine is designed to create uh, high school drama and, and generally of an explosive, disastrous sort, uh, her job is to sort of lead us into that with uh, uh, antagonists that will cause us to uh, be irritated. And she she did that pretty well. And again, it's the scenario was, was a fine scenario, and I think that it's the monster heart's uh, nature to want to be played over a longer period of time, but... At the end, there's only so much you can do in a four-hour slot. So Kira basically said, uh, you know, acknowledge that we were going to be hand-waving sort of the last little bit just so we could have a, a successful, uh, uh, you know, narrative outcome as opposed to, you know, following the game mechanically into the see-you-next-week wall, which we then couldn't pass. Right. Because what I've found with my evolution of how I present a drama system in one-hour, or sorry, one-session segments was that I started out trying to tailor the experience to work better as a one-shot, and I found that actually not trying to shoehorn it into that and just playing it as a normal first session and then leaving them wanting more was the thing that people actually wanted, which is sort of a counterintuitive conclusion to come to. You would think that people wanted more of a package, but uh, it was a more satisfying package by not trying to wrap up as much. I know that when I ran Call of Cthulhu in conventions, uh, I would uh, I found that if I started at the midpoint and let the uh, horror and being eaten and going crazy dominate the uh, game session, the players tended to enjoy it more than if they had to go through a investigative you know, two-thirds that then ended with uh, being eaten. Right, and that sort of points to the idea that if you're, how you solve that problem is going to be different depending on what game you've selected. So that, that's an example of where you're tailoring the experience to the convention play, uh, and other games, uh, you may do better not tailoring. And that's something that, you know, you, you don't see a lot of uh, guidance for people to shift their play styles for convention play, and it would vary from game to game. So it would be an interesting question to explore across different games of what works best uh, in a four-hour session across all the different sorts of role-playing games that you might want to run. Uh, but let's uh, switch gears a bit. Uh, so going to a, a big convention where a lot of your industry buds are present is a great way to take the temperature of the hobby gaming industry at any given moment. It used to be that I felt that going particularly to uh, Gen Con, because I'm not a regular Origins attendee, but I'm sure it's true at Origins as well, that you it used to be very swingy. You would get a sense of everything was great one year and then everybody would be very down the next year and then down another year and then up again. And lately it seemed to be sort of more on an even plane of chugging along. So how would you gauge the emotional temperature of people who uh, produce and sell adventure games at this point based on your experience at Origins? Well, Origins specifically uh, went through a real nadir last year when they uh, when they had to re-sign their, their contract for the Columbus Convention Center. And as a consequence, they wound up last year playing before Memorial Day. So a lot of people were still in school, which meant parents couldn't come, which meant kids couldn't come. So they had a real bad year last year. And I think the, the, re the relief that Origins was still in existence was sort of the dominant flavor of that. In terms of the uh, flavor of, you know, how hobby gaming is going, there's the other sort of interesting thing about Origins recently is that fewer and fewer manufacturers have been coming with booths and as part of a, a booth uh, or convention presence in the same way that you would have, um, you know, manufacturers uh, all over the floor at Gen Con. Now, 
Jason Bullman, for example, from Paizo, and Eric Mona from Paizo. There were lots of people there from uh, Paizo running Pathfinder events and being very Pathfindery, but there was not a big Paizo booth in the middle of the dealer's room where you could go buy all the latest wonderful Pathfinder things. And so in terms of taking the temperature of the industry, Origins is not as uh, reliable a thermometer as Gen Con is, even though Gen Con, of course, is always done at a white heat and Origins is ideal for it if you can uh if if you can have the person there to talk to because there's a a less high pressure environment all about origins one of the reasons I like origins so much so the people that were there I was spending a lot of time with the indie game designers who were generally pretty positive about what's going on there's the, the uh, sort of a new generation of indie uh, guys is coming in and they're wondering you know, uh, the, the, they're sort of discovering the exact number of orders of magnitude that separates them from Paizo and reacting with various levels of um, uh, confusion and uh, amazement. And then the uh, the war game people have sort of uh, been back and forth. That's sort of the spine of, of Origins and has been since the beginning is the war game crowd. Uh, GMT, which is, as far as I'm concerned, sort of the premier war game company, was just sort of back there with a with a very minimalist booth, so I didn't really think that they had a lot of confidence in Origins, if not in the market segment, but Decision Games was there, Victory Games was there. There were a lot of other sort of uh, tabletop wargaming companies, and they were doing great guns. As Day was there, so board gaming seemed to be pretty strong. Right, because historically, Origins has been the wargaming convention, that in the early days it had more of a wargaming focus, and uh, Gen Con had more of a role-playing focus, and that's a matter of degree, not of absolute kind, but you still, uh, do you still see a lot of the sort of that, that cultural roots of the origin of origins these days? Oh, very much. Uh, the war college line of seminars is still very strong at origins. They've got a lot of people who come in and they, you know, which was the greatest tank battle of world war two type seminars. Uh, and so there's, there's, there's a lot of that. And there are a lot of war games out there on the floor, a lot of war games being played and a lot of booths that offer war games for sale. And that's truer at Origins than it is at Gen Con, even in absolute numbers. And certainly as a percentage, it's overwhelming. But it's not a war game convention in the same sense that, say, uh, Con, Con Sim World is. And it's not even a board game convention in the sense that Board Game Geek Con is. It's a general convention. I mean, there's lots of card events that happen in the card hall, which I never go to. Uh, and so there's cards being sold at the various booths as well. Uh, but... The uh, overall sort of flavor of the convention is that of a board gaming convention with a strong wargaming angle to it. And that has been true, you know, as long as I've been going to Origins, regardless of what the attendance has been, up and down, swinging back and forth. However, the role-playing contingent side of Origins has dropped off a little bit, at least on the show floor. Uh, the number of events, I think, has dropped off as well uh, in recent years. I think Origins is engaged in a multi-year project of trying to turn around Origins, and it, 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 in the, any individual maneuver during that looks like it might be a, you know heading into the ground versus a heading into the clouds year. This, I think, coming as it was after last year, can only have been thought of as a positive by everybody, but the degree to which it was positive, you could get different answers on the floor. Some people had great sales and some people had terrible sales. Well, I guess that wraps up our uh, look at your trip to Origins, and we'll look forward to uh, Gen Con, and we have a convention that we're appearing together after that, but we'll tease that for later. The whir of the projector and the smell of hot buttered popcorn welcome us once more into the confines of the Cinema Hut. And while they are showing the um, uh, How to Find Your Seat video and the previews of coming attractions and the tiresome ads for things that got uh, looped into the front of the trailers, I thought we might talk to Robin about his recent cinematic excursion back, back into the dawn of Chinese martial arts cinema and the whip that smacks the candle. And Robin, that sounds like it could have been all kinds of movies, but you're going to uh, hopefully set us right. Yeah, so I was lucky enough to go to the Tiff Bell White Box to see as part of an extended series of films from the history of Chinese cinema, a film called The Whip That Smacks the Candle, which is the very first Wong Fai Hung movie from 1949. It was presented 
by the current and former directors of the Hong Kong Film Archive, who were able to put it in much-needed context. Uh, I wish I'd been able to also see some of the rare silent films from even earlier in the history of Chinese cinema, but that was during the weekend I was at the Onwards conference in Ottawa, and I'm still sadly unable to bilocate, so I missed that. But I did not miss this film from 1949, which is the first of a series of, I think, 77 films, it's certainly in the 70s, uh, all around the character of Wang Fei-Hung, who was a real historical figure who lived from 1847 to 1924 and was a martial artist who developed and taught a style of martial arts uh, called uh, Hungar. And he was also a physician and, according to legend, something of a revolutionary, although that's uh, part of the legend part and not necessarily part of the history part, but Wong Fei-Hung has certainly passed into legend through the medium of cinema, and this was a very primitive early version of all of the tropes that later appear in the Once Upon a Time in China series that we saw in the uh, classic era of Hong Kong action uh, cinema in the late 80s and early 90s starring Jet Li, uh, and there have been other Wong Fei-Hung movies. Uh, Jackie Chan in uh, Drunken Master and Drunken Master 2 plays a character referred to as Wang Fei-Hung and has other cast members who are sort of drawn from the uh, original set of characters, but he himself is not very Wang Fei-Hung-like in those. So anyway, it was a really fascinating opportunity to see the language of a genre first being established in what is a damaged but uh, still watchable uh, 16-millimeter print that was restored as part of a project to restore the first two of these films. So what were the uh, characteristics of the genre that uh, emerged in this uh, 1949 uh, film? And uh, did they emerge sort of in their, you know, in, 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 a, in a recognizable form that you can see in their later flowering in the late 80s? Or is it the sort of thing where you can sort of see it as a seed, but someone else had to come in and, and nurture it in the 70s during the, the, the great explosion of, of martial arts films before it became really recognizable. What you see are all of the tropes beginning to be introduced without the structure. The first Wang Fei-Hung movies are basically a, fe a feature-length serial. So uh, part one just sort of ends in the middle when he shows up to another fight with a dude. And the there's a storyline that basically takes up the first third of the film and then is concluded and then they set up another storyline and then they just sort of cut in the middle and say come back for part two and so the first narrative is actually four or five films and that's something that continued apparently over the course of the series in fact out of the 77 films like something like 22 of them were from 1952 so basically at that point it's like a serialized television show that's being screened in in theaters so there are things about it that are very primitive. They're also sort of cutting away from the storyline in order to highlight aspects of Hong Kong street life. So the first, you know, 10 minutes of the film is basically a documentary illustration of the lion dance in which the lion jumps around, uh, the lion, two guys in the lion costume, and then he gets up and, and eats the cabbage. And so you can see uh, Choi Hawk later on in the Once Upon a Time in China series incorporates the lion dance a lot. So because it was, whether it related a huge amount to the narrative of the first one, later filmmakers have identified that as something that you want to see in a Wang Fei-Hung movie and have created storylines in which that has greater import, for example. And there are later sequences where you see a street singer and it just pauses to show what is presumably an actual street singer in 1949 doing a Chinese folk song, and then they continue on with the narrative. And the basic idea that a martial arts film is about a series of variously petty rivalries with other kung fu schools is basically what drives the narrative. And also the character of Wang Fei-Hung, who in the original, because it is an older actor, his uh, name was Quan Tak Hing. He was sort of a, and he's sort of a weird looking person to be a major movie star. Uh, he's uh, kind of jug-eared and a little older, but he 
has this sort of uh, patrician presence. And so when Jet Li started playing the part much later, it was sort of a surprise to uh, audiences to see a younger version of that character. And here he's very much sort of a fatherly figure who is uh, the guy who is uh, usually has the wisdom to see what's going on. And he's got a uh, one sort of wayward uh, student who goes and gets into trouble and another sort of callow student who isn't quite uh, ready yet. And between them, that sort of creates the sense of danger. He's also like uh, the Spirit or Roy Rogers or a lot of sort of early uh, heroes of the 30s and 40s in North America is completely flummoxed around women. Um, there are things about it, though, that are very different from the way that you would expect a adventure film for all ages in the 40s to be. For example, there's a, a very frank recognition that uh, brothels exist, and there's a storyline that takes place in, in a in a brothel, and uh, it's clear, you know, these characters are you know, she's not just a saloon singer. This is an actual prostitute that we're dealing with in the storyline. So there's an illustration of what, you know, different societies consider to be acceptable bounds for uh, all ages entertainment. Now, the of course, famously, the uh, the Jet Li well, Wong Fai Hung films are about uh, the conflict between uh, Western imperialism and Chinese sort of uh, cultural tradition. And then obviously Wong Fai Hung gets awakened as a hero once uh, the nationalists have to de decamp to Taiwan because legendarily he drove the Japanese out of Taiwan. So there's a sort of a, a, a you know, a Taiwanese um, going to punch you in the face nationalism that's going on with the Wong Fai Hung character. Is that part of this Wong Fai Hung movie that is set actually during, you know, that, that was made during that brouhaha? Or is this Wong Fai Hung relatively apolitical and just sort of goes around and heals people when he isn't punching them. Oddly enough, for this film made in 1949, uh, the politics is all in the subtext, and particularly in the subtext of the fighting style, because the stunt guys and the fight choreographers were largely refugees who had escaped uh, uh, Guangzhou and were now suddenly uh, in place again in Hong Kong. And so the fighting style that you see is not the strict Hungar style that Wang Fai Hung was famous for, but is more of a, uh, quote, northern style, i.e. north of Hong Kong, not northern China, that uh, the fight choreographers knew. And it's also interesting to sort of see this as one point on an evolution of fighting style in martial arts cinema, because if you go sort of backwards in time, starting with the uh, Choi Hawk films, that's the height of the wirework era where people are uh, fighting on uh, wires and being vaulted around, uh, even in films like that, which is supposed to represent a more realistic fighting style, you've uh, there's still lots of wire work, for example. And uh, if you go back to the uh, late 60s, where the uh, director uh, King Hu was very innovative and sort of reshaped the boundaries of the Wuxia film, the most exciting fight moves there are the uh, performers jumping on trampolines, and that's what gets them up into the air for brief periods of time. Well, in 1949, the state of the art of jumping around was you would jump from the second story down to the first story, either putatively unharmed or pretending to have been hurt, or sometimes you would, you know, flip in midair. So that's the main feature of the fighting style here. The other fighting gimmick is that uh, according to the star of these films, he had a sojourn in Hollywood and met Douglas Fairbanks and there learned the tricks of Western-style whipsmanship. And so there is a sequence at the end uh, around which the film is named in which he extinguishes a whole bunch of candles by uh, whipping a not Western-style whip, but like a Chinese-style uh, whip around. And a, a, that is something that apparently comes up again in, in later films as well. Is there a political component besides the fact that uh, a guy representing... Um... Hong Kong is uh, beating up guys who are using a, a Guangzhou-style martial art? Um, it's not even that. It's it's that he and it, the whole fighting style in the film is is the, the, the Guangzhou style. So there's no political text right. whatsoever. The, the bad guys are, uh, in one case, a uh, 
sniveling businessman who kidnaps the uh, the wife of a local, and then there's a uh, the second antagonist is a guy who is uh, disrespectful to Wang Fei Hung and actually uh, rattles him a bit. So uh, the uh, elements that you see in the later films where there's more distance from those events is definitely not present here. Was the original filmmaker, you said that the star was there, was the original filmmaker still alive? or is Oh he... no, this, the, star, the star was not there either. It's the people who were there were the uh, current and former heads of the Hong Kong Film Archive. They, they're all long since departed. Okay, so no, no one actually involved in the production was there. Yeah. A lot of the later uh, movies, uh, obviously post-Shaw Brothers, um, are really focused on Wong Fai Hung as a badass uh, fighter, and his medical career is looked at more as sort of Bruce Wayne's billionaire career. It, it's there just as an excuse, uh, a, a place to put him. Is this Wong Fai Hung? Does, does it uh, combine the sort of the, the Chinese uh, martial arts uh, sort of Falun Gong notion that martial arts and and healing are two sides of the same coin, are part of the same package? In other words, is his doctor aspect uh, stronger in this early uh, film, or is it just another convenient cover? If anything, it's downplayed even more, at least in this first episode. I'm sure over the length of 77 episodes it comes up, but the focus is very much on introducing him as part of a tradition of teachers. So there's actually a sequence in which he delivers exposition about the origin of his fighting style and lists all of the different generations of teachers down to him, and it pans across a series of images of those people. So it is very much about the history of the fighting style in which a Chinese audience is just going to assume that there is some sort of medical component, but that, you know, you don't see him healing anybody in, in the course of this, but you uh, undoubtedly would later on in the series, because I'm sure they've got to get around to that at some point. Okay. Um, I think that we have probably whipped the candle up enough to get people uh, jealous of Robin and interested in uh, finding out if uh, this will ever come out on some sort of import DVD later on in life. And with that, we exit the Cinema Hut. Just as our eyes are adjusting from the darkness and uh, comfort of the cinema hut, they are probed by lasers to determine our retinal print, and we are dragged, <laughs> willy and or nilly, into the all-pervasive gaze of the Tradecraft hut, where indeed the all-pervasive gaze is ever more all-pervasive in the wake of recent revelations that the NSA has been busily storing everybody's everything in a giant uh, Zeta, Zeta flop. Uh, Zetabyte uh, storage facility somewhere in Utah, which uh, is sort of ironic given the amount of porn that must be down there. Um, so, uh, Robin, uh, what do you as a uh, Canadian whose government is also apparently caught up in this, because I think I read that your defense minister was saying, oh yeah, we've been doing this for years and years. Um, what, what's going on uh, with PRISM and the surveillance state uh, up in the Great White North? Well, it's very interesting to see, you know, there, there's a lot of shock that there's been gambling going on in the casino. Um, I'm sort of surprised at the level of what has actually hit the official discussion, because it's been, you know, we have a level of proof that all of these major internet services are being accessed by some unknown means that the services really want you to know is not a direct means, uh, but do not, are un legally disallowed from explaining exactly what that does or doesn't mean. We have a PowerPoint presentation, uh, which is a great contrast to the banality of real-world spycraft. It's an you know, ugly series of uh, PowerPoint slides, whereas if this was a movie, it would be a you know, super animated CGI file that you'd be opening. Um, but the upshot of that is just something that, to me, seems like, haven't we known all along that the NSA basically intercepts all electronic traffic everywhere and supposedly exempts 
U.S. persons from that, except that we know that there are other allied uh, groups. You, you know that they're being very specific in saying that the NSA does not monitor the telephone conversations or internet traffic of U.S. persons. Well, the NSA doesn't. We do here yeah. in Canada. We have a reciprocal deal with our equivalent of the NSA, which is the Communications Security Establishment Canada, a acronym so bland it is impossible to remember, which is perhaps the greatest bit of tradecraft whatsoever. As part of the so-called Five Eyes, Canada is also building a giant complex that uh, mirrors the one in Utah, and the Brits are building one. And do you remember who the other two eyes of the five eyes are well, if, the, if the other two eyes are the rest of the echelon group, then it's going to be Australia and I guess uh, New Zealand, because Australia I know is part of echelon, and I assume it's the other uh, English-speaking uh, uh, first world countries that are going to be part of this. Right, so basically the entire Anglo world listens into all electronic uh, conversations, or at least records them. They can't actually, you know, you couldn't possibly, even with data mining technology, actually follow even a tiny fraction of what's going on. But basically, the big building in Ottawa and the big building in Utah are, I assume, storing basically a system image of all electronic communications. And everybody's communications are being monitored by somebody. If you are emailing me as a Canadian, uh, your uh, American establishment is nonetheless monitoring all of those exciting emails that you will be exchanging with me. And uh, the same is true if... Uh, the Americans want to get some backdoor information on a U.S. citizen, they just uh, call up Ottawa or London or, uh, you know, Brisbane or wherever the one is in Australia, and uh, Bob's your uncle. So what are we to make between the disparity of what is being discussed and is shocking people and what we seem to have kind of known all along? Well, I think that part of it, and again, we should emphasize at this early outset that we um, not only are we recording this before you're hearing it, but also with stories like this, a lot of times the details don't firm up or drop until months after the initial story has broken between the uh, various agencies' desire to keep everything secret and the general sloth and uh, timidity of American journalists. So there is a there, there is a natural tendency for anything that we say here to wind up seeming quaint and antiquated if you listen to us uh, later on. But Given what we know now, I think that part of the um, part of the superpowerness of this is this sort of contrast between Obama's, you know, constant assurances that the war on terror is over and mean old George W. Bush is gone and will trouble us no more, and then his most recent speech where he sort of was promising, half promising to not be drony so much and to really just double down on efforts to close Gitmo for sure and for awesome, and then of course this thing pops out and it. I think it's part of it is the cognitive dissonance and the immediate, no, that's actually not true moment of it that is sort of uh, sparking a lot of it. Plus, I think it, 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 it maybe Prism is a sexier name than Echelon. Although it is still consistent with his general argument that it's not a war on terror, but a uh, police effort against terror. And certainly the revelation that there's this gigantic police intelligence organization, essentially, is, uh, if not something that... Uh, makes one feel happy is not inconsistent with the position that he put forward. And it's part of a tradition where, uh, particularly when Democratic presidents get into office, they become either uh, hardline supporters of the intelligence establishment or become captured by the intelligence establishment, depending on how you want to put that. Yeah, but a lot of it is the imagery. Remember, I mean, Obama, there's someone has cut together a great debate between candidate Obama and President Obama on this topic where he was talking about the, you know, the program that the CIA or whoever was going to go ask about your library books uh, and the Admiral Poindexter's total awareness program that basically, which turned out to be this, that you would look at all the data and start mining pictures out of it. Um, and candidate Obama was campaigning also against the police aspect of this. He was campaigning against the Patriot Act. He was campaigning against the FISA courts. He was campaigning against uh, the wiretapping. All of the stuff, of course, that as president, he has either been captured by or has realized is actually kind of important, even in a police campaign against uh, Al-Qaeda. But he worked very, very hard to erode those distinctions while campaigning, uh, both in 2008 and in 2012, and that's come back to bite him as the uh, program has been 
you know, unveiled dramatically by uh, Edward Snowden. So uh, which are you inclined to think this is? Is this a necessary part of an eternal police effort against terrorism, or is this an uh, unnecessary infringement on the rights of every person in the world uh, in furtherance of a threat that is nowhere near that magnitude. Well, I mean, I, this is part of what, you know, the more information needs to come out because we don't even really know what this is, right? If the this is what the Obama administration is currently saying this is, which is to say that all they're doing is they're capturing metadata, that the NSA is not looking at any individual phone calls or emails without a specific warrant from the FISA court, then that is justifiable in a world where literally we are you know, a hundred million dollars and an uninspected freighter away from an atomic bomb going off in Houston. And I think that that's a legitimate thing to be concerned about and to work very, very hard to prevent. And if that means, you know, some degree of metadata analysis and data mining, that may happen to be an, you know, an un unavoidable consequence of both having an internet and having nuclear weapons in the world. And I think that those are just, those two things are going to make a data mining program like this inevitable one way or the other. And if we're not doing it, certainly the Chinese are doing it with their own data. Certainly everyone else who's capturing data, uh, the, you know, the Germans right now are making a big crazy stink about the NSA doing it. But if the German security services aren't doing the exact same thing, I'll eat my hat. Right. And there's been a, a parallel scandal where the uh, it has been revealed that the British services the last time that the G20 was hosted in London were making a targeted effort to uh, snoop on everybody down to the aid level and crack passwords. And this is all, it's G20. It's uh, all spying on allies. Yeah. Well, if it's, if it's G20, it's not all allies because Russia's in the G20 and so is China. Right. But they were, they were also spying on allies. Not yeah, just well, the... I mean, again, the, the fact that we spy on our allies is one of the dirty little secrets of international um, uh, espionage that people don't like to emphasize. We would much rather believe that the U.S. and Canada are standing shoulder to shoulder against, you know, the Taliban then the U.S. and Canada are also making sure that the Canadian defense attaché's password is known to the guys at the NSA and vice versa. Right. And the allegations that uh, Snowden is making extend to, you know, that basically he's accusing the NSA of hacking any system it can possibly encounter down to, you know, individual hospitals in Hong Kong. Yeah. No, uh, Snowden, Snowden's accusations, again, are the sort of thing where... Uh, you know, a, a good portion of the reporting on him has already turned up to be weird. Um, for example, the timeline of his employment at Booz Allen, uh, he pre, it, it postdates his contacting uh, Glenn Greenwald. So to some extent, he was acting not as a contractor outraged by the NSA, but as a mole attempting to gather information for a journalist. Now, you know, that's they, they both may be uh, productive of something truly outrageous, but it's two different perspectives. Uh, again, he's, he, he was lying about his uh, salary, and the fact that he's gone to hide from an omnipresent police state in Hong Kong implies that he is not super capable of doing research or that there is more to the story that we don't know about, uh, like he was being run by the Chinese MSS, which is something that I think is, you know, certainly at least a smart bet on the undercard. So we don't know anything about this story, really. Uh, right now, we do know that um, I think that if, you know, the NSA is, in fact, uh, taking out a blanket warrant on, you know, everyone in Chicago and listening in on everyone's conversations or, or data mining down to the individual email level looking for evidence they can later use against us should it come necessary. I, I think that becomes in the level of disturbing civil liberties infringement, but I think there has to be a debate about how you tie a genuine need for national security into the existence of the internet, because the way to stop it right now is to get rid of the internet, and I think that would uh, not be an optimal uh, outcome for anybody. Right. And it also goes to the question of how do you have accountability in a world of absolute secrecy? We right. saw, for example, during the Tsarnaev story that they were not monitoring the Tsarnaevs while they were plotting the uh, Boston Marathon bombing, but during the investigation were able to go back and access all of their communications. So that certainly suggests that, you know, everything is being stored and that everything is available. In that case, presumably that was made available through a, a secret warrant. Uh, how one feels about secret warrants uh, depends on how much of a civil liberties absolutist uh, one is. But uh, how would you ideally, as, a, as an American citizen, want to see uh, that 
balance struck, and does it even matter when this is essentially an extranational activity where there can be all sorts of accountability and checks and balances in place within the U.S., but when it comes right down to it, they just have to call Ottawa and have us uh, send them the image file. Yeah. I, I think that as an American, you, you want as a at least as a, a, a ground level uh, some sort of notion that your personal communications are not being monitored. Um, and the question of to what extent is the image file captured is the image file, you know, can you get a, a, a post hoc warrant, right? I mean, if, if, uh, if, if someone goes out and they were not being monitored because they were an American citizen, like one of the Tsarnaevs is, and then they go out and they commit a terrorist atrocity, do I want the FBI to be able to dig back through their email and find out if they were being told to do it by some other shadowy guy that hasn't been arrested yet? I kind of absolutely want that. But on the other hand, I can very much understand a civil libertarian's desire to say, no, what you said, if you said it when you weren't being monitored, it can't be retroactively monitored. I mean, if, we, if the government got time viewers, I'm not sure I would want the government to have the right to go look at um, uh, what I was doing in my house without a search warrant, you know, in the past. I, I, there's a lot of questions that the, that the technology opens up. I'm really sort of uh, on both sides of the fence here, because on the one hand, you know, I'm, I'm not an idiot. I know what a nuclear weapon can do to a city, and I know just how many people there are out there who would really, really like to use one. Uh, and I would like those people to be thwarted with extreme prejudice. But on the other hand, you know, most Americans don't have anything to do with that. Americans all sh should have a presumption of uh, of non-governmental infer interference in all aspects of their life. And the other, of course, great problem is once this data file exists, the temptation to use it against domestic political enemies, as uh, Nixon uh, did, as uh, Johnson did, as Kennedy did, as Obama's IRS at least has done, that temptation is fairly overwhelming. And Maybe that's the reason not to have it, and if it you know means that we just have to call Ottawa every time we want something, well, that's reason number 90 to be nice to Canada. Right. The thing is that not all slippery slope arguments are created equal, and what you have to do is you have to look at how many steps away from something horrible is this. And if there is no accountability whatsoever and no acknowledgement even of what we know to be going on, it seems like there are you know the number of steps from used to abuse is essentially zero, that we're at that stage already. Mm -hmm. Now, I had uh, hoped to sort of segue into a role-playing application of this discussion, but we will have to uh, postpone that to a future episode, because we had enough of the tradecraft and politics to uh, talk over. So uh, later we'll talk about what your player characters do in a world of omnipresent surveillance. And speaking of series and connections, we now head back into the court of the Consulting Occultist for part three of our series on the Nazi occult, inspired by Ken's book of the same name for the Osprey Adventures line. In our previous installments, we first of all looked at Ken's process of putting that book together. Last week, we then examined the sort of roots uh, in uh, pre-war Germany, that's pre-both wars, that led both to this flowering of occult thought along with the Nazi movement itself when we looked at who the leaders were within the Nazi movement who were the patrons of this. And so uh, this week we're going to zero in on a particular not only crazy occultist but certifiably crazy occultist <laughs> named Karl Maria Villagut and uh, his patron uh, was Himmler who we talked about last week. So perhaps you could start the story of Karl Maria Villagut before he hooks up with the Nazis. How does he uh, start on his road to becoming a uh, key figure in the Nazi occult? Nazi occultist par excellence, uh, Karl Maria Villagut, begins uh, before there are Nazis, before there are any of this foolishness. He's born in um, Austria in uh, 1866, which is quite a ways before there are Nazis. And he uh, takes a, a military career. He becomes a um, uh, infantryman and then later on a cavalryman in um, World War One. He served on the on the Balkan fronts and we became a colonel because of his conspicuous gallantry and uh, and bravery in battle. Uh, 
it, in between those, uh, however, he finds rune magic. He becomes part of this nascent rune magic uh, cultist that's grown up around uh, Guido von List and the notion of a war between the pure Germanness and the filthy, uh, decadent uh, Latinness of Southern Europe. And so that sort of draws his attention into, one would say normally, Ariosophism or Arminism, but of course he had a heretical version of it called Irminism, which was based on the Irminzul, the sacred pillar of the Saxons, who are all the way across Germany from Austria, but are still sort of symbolic of the war against Christianity, uh, because they are the guys who fought off Charlemagne for oh so many years until Charlemagne had enough of it and chopped down the Irminzul. So fr from a uh, step back, how significant are the differences between these two schismatic or uh, Germano-occultist belief strains between the Arminists and the Irminists? Is this uh, uh, like the Humusians? Is this, uh, <laughs> uh, how, how big a difference is this really? Well, it, it, I think part of it is it's a big difference to Villagut because he believes that he is the reincarnation of Irminist uh, um, magical kings going all the way back to 228,000 BC or thereabouts. And so he believes that as sort of the guy who has the true picture of the past, that all the other Ariosophists have to sort of go along with what he says. And it becomes really significant if you are a rune magician under the Nazis, because Himmler listens to Villagut when he says which rune magicians you toss in the camps and which ones you don't. And so it becomes, you know, personally very significant later on, although to outsiders, it, 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 it's even less significant than the difference between, say, red hat and yellow hat Tibetan Buddhism. It, it's just very much a who's on top type question. It was just a blatant vowel swap. It's a blatant vowel swap. I think that the, um, that the difference is sort of of a... I, I think Arminism is slightly less crazy, but, you know, you, you, the, the measure is, is not, it's not overwhelming. It's not like the Arminists are right. simple anthropologists gone wrong and Irminists are, are nuts. It's that Irminists are nuts and Ar Arminists are mostly nuts. Right. Because by definition, if this, if Villagut thought it up, yeah. it is more nuts than the thing that he based it on. Yeah, exactly. I think that's, that's a, that's also a personal diagnosis is, is a, is a good uh, guideline. So his, does his declaration of Irminism predate his Nazi association? It, it does. He predated it in a uh, book called Neun Gebote Gotts, uh, which uh, probably means nine something gods, uh, and who knows what it means. Uh, but he he claimed that in 1908 and began to um, sort of obsess about that kind of thing. Whether or not this is because he's got a, a, a child that dies as a baby, and so that sort of get, gave him a, a, a big um, uh, sort of a personal connection to questions of life and death and, and existence and reincarnation and, and, and things like that, in the same way that it it sort of drove Arthur Conan Doyle over the edge in spiritualism when his son died in World War One, or if it got sort of further accelerated by his experiences in World War One. I, I, I'm not familiar enough with his biography to say, but I'll bet both of them have something to do with it. So uh, we have him in 1908 having all of these uh, mystical revelations, and he presumably uh, ticks away uh, as an occultist for a while, and then finally uh, Himmler... Uh, plucks him from, from where to become his occult advisor? Well, Himmler plucks him from uh, where he is um, sort of rebuilding his old connections as being a clairvoyant who can look back and see the, 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 the true German past, right? The Irminist past. And this is the same shtick that Guido von List used when he invented uh, the sort of rune magic Ariosophy in 1903. So it's a very common uh, pattern. Villagut has a circle of admirers, a circle of followers who think that he's the real deal. And uh, possibly this is because he's got that, you know, sort of uh, military ex experience. He's a, um, uh, he's, he's a, he's a cavalryman. He's, he's got that, that level of presence. He's got at least one uh, influential follower named Ernst Rudiger, who was a uh, uh, conservative politician in Austria and a sort of a major figure in sort of the Austrian right wing. And uh, he's got his buddies in the Order of the New Templars, who were the sort of high bourgeois, low aristocracy pre-World War I, and the ones that stayed, you know, in contact, sort of circled around Villagut as a suitably aristocratic figure, because he, like I say, he's got that, uh, that cavalry presence, and of course his clairvoyant revelation that he is actually the son 
of uh, kings of the Aesir and uh, uh, Irminist uh, magics going all the way back to ancient times. So how early does he jump on the Nazi bandwagon? Uh, he gets uh, put into uh, Himmler's staff in uh, 1933. He, he meets Himmler at a, at a sort of a Nordic uh, scholarship meeting. Uh, to use the word scholarship, perhaps too loosely. A Nordic um, crazy pants meeting? A Nordic crazy pants meeting. Although one imagines that they also invited real, um, real, scho- real anthropologists, real uh, linguists. There was a, a very flourishing part of the, of the academy, especially in Germany and Austria, uh, called basically uh, symbology, in which you studied symbolic presence in real in, in modern-day things and then tried to pull it back as far as you could to the runes. It, it's that rune lore reaching out as sort of folklore studies, as popular architecture, cultural studies, that kind of thing. And those guys would probably have been at, at this conference as well, but that's sort of right in Himmler's wheelhouse. So he, he shows up. Villagood is a big wheel. Uh, Himmler brings him into the SS as his um, uh, personal clairvoyant, basically, and puts him in charge of the Department for Pre and Early History, which is inside the uh, SS Race and Resettlement Office, which is the office that is going to get up to all manner of hilarity later on in the war. But in order to tell you know where all the races come from, we need a guy who was there, and that guy is Karl Maria Villagut, and he is. Um, uh, he takes the name Weisthor, uh, meaning uh, White Thor, because we would hate to make a confusion with some <laughs> other color of Thor. That's the only color people who really like Thor want him to be. I, I think that you're certainly hitting your, your target demo right dead center if you are White Thor. Um, Asian Thor, not as not as big a draw for some reason, except in anime, I'll bet. Um, anyway, he becomes Vice Thor and becomes a major... Um, uh, he got sort of put in uh, pretty much right at his old colonel's rank, and then... He's uh, promoted again to uh, Brigadier General. And this is within the SS? This is within the SS. This is just basically for sitting around and designing awesome Nazi stuff. He designed the Death's Head uh, Nazi emblem, uh, the SS emblem. He designed, uh, he's been given credit for designing the SS runes, which is probably not true, but he designed their, their cool dagger and uh, was also, of course, writing down all of his revelations from the uh, from from the mystic uh, Irminist past and explaining uh, exactly how we have gotten to the parlous state where the world is full of submen and uh, trouble is a bruin. And so, what impact did he have on the world other than these items of uh, set decoration? Was he giving advice to uh, Himmler that Himmler then went out and uh, acted upon? He, uh, th- to the extent that he gave advice to Himmler. It was almost always mystical advice. Uh, at the, according to um, Ernst Schaefer's, I think it was Ernst Schaefer's secretary. Uh, and explain for a sec who Ernst Schaefer is. Ernst Schaefer is the guy who heads the Nazi expedition to Tibet. He's an uh, actual ornithologist and also a Nazi. And he, uh, he was told before Him- Himmler would pay for his expedition to Tibet, he would have to pass an interview with Villagut. And so if one assumes that Villagut is sort of a... Uh, you know, a, a human resources guy for Himmler's projects, there there would have been some degree to which he smoothed the path of either crazy people or people who were sociopathic enough to be able to pretend to be crazy people in order to get a job. And so he may or may not have had some effect on, uh, you know, people who got hired to run various things in the SS. But he was not out there saying, you know, uh, the, the, the mystic runes say we should invade Belgium. That wasn't really his job. But it was his job, as far as he saw, to identify rival occultists and have them sent to the death camps. Not to the death camps, to concentration camps. Oh. People usually uh, elide the the distinction between a concentration camp and a death camp uh, because they were both pretty horrible and people died in the concentration camps in, in plentiful numbers. Right. But the death camps don't actually exist qua death camps until 1942 or 1943 after the Wannsee Conference and the sort of creation of the final solution. Uh, before that, it's all concentration camps, which are still plenty horrible and uh, are still using people as slave labor and are still, you know, uh, not places that you are uh, you are going to get better and are in many cases going to die. But the, um, uh, but the old uh, Arminists uh, and uh, Votanists, the guys who were uh, fans of the uh, old Germanic god Votan, a lot of them got tossed into concentration camps for being the wrong kind of crazy uh, under under Villagut's sort of supervision, and that was certainly you know bad enough. Now he had a very close personal relationship with his rock collection. 
Yes, this is something that came out uh, in 1938 when Carl Wolf, uh, Himmler's adjutant, began to think that it was not the best idea in the world to have a clairvoyant setting your personnel policies. And he began digging around in the past and discovered that, indeed, um, Villagut's wife had had Villagut institutionalized, committed to a mental institution uh, in Salzburg, I think, uh, in 1924. He was tossed in uh, the clink for, in the medical clink, for schizophrenia and megalomania. He was declared legally incompetent and was immured there until 1927. And during that time, in addition to warning all of the inmates that the Ku Klux Klan was going to come get them, he also organized rocks that he would pick up in the creek that ran near the property and uh, would set them in patterns and talk to them and engage them in harangues about the Irminist past and general act very much like a crazy delusional person. And uh, I'm not sure how he got out, <laughs> which I think is maybe a better story than how he got in. But among the other things he was uh, tossed in for was um, uh, beating his wife, uh, threatening to kill his wife, and making... Uh, sexual advances to his daughters. So that's the sort of thing that even in Himmler's personal staff is going to stand out. And so the uh, SS sort of uh, sent a, a notice around, I guess, in the in the you know the corporate mailbox that said our good buddy Weisthor is uh, retiring for reasons of health, and uh, he was um, <laughs> his application for retirement was filled out without his knowledge, I guess, and he was um, stripped of his uh, ring and dagger and put uh, out to pasture in uh, Goslar uh, and um, a little sort of lakefront retirement house and given an SS guard to make sure that he didn't talk to anybody else. So am I correct in assuming from what you're saying that although he's a colorful figure, he's not really an important figure in the real actual history of World War II? In the real actual history of World War II, since he is basically uh, locked away before World War II begins, he is, he is not that big a deal. He, um, uh, he is uh, extremely colorful in terms of the, the nature of German occultism, and as an example of the sort of thing Himmler really wanted to believe, because he cost the SS a great deal of money and attention when he was running whole departments of it. And if you know Heinrich Himmler is unable to uh, differentiate reality well enough to notice that a guy who claims to have clairvoyant knowledge of his past lives back to 228,000 BC is perhaps not on the level. That tells you a little something about how Himmler is going to run that portion of the war that he is allowed to run. But in terms of Villegut's personal influence on the war, it doesn't seem to have been that much. Uh, again, if you know all the Nazis had ever done was investigate rune magic and believe clairvoyance, they probably wouldn't have gotten into any trouble at all, and they would just be you know, it'd be like when you found out that uh, Nancy Reagan consulted astrologers. It's funny, but not particularly, you know, historically um, uh, important one way or the other. Now, on the other hand, in the mythology of Nazi occultism, presumably he looms large. Are there any particular favorite crazy uh, theories that have cropped up uh, since uh, this all uh, entered the realm of pop culture and the elliptony shelf that uh, you particularly treasure? Well, the, um, the, the role of uh, Villagut is not usually explored in the sort of uh, myth makers, although some of the myths that he made are cropping up. For example, he is one of the guys who brought the myth of the black sun, the second sun that exists in the solar system that is uh, the, the source of, depending on how you read it, it's the source of malign rays, it's the sun that will rise and eclipse the boring old Jewish sun that we have now. Uh, there's all kinds of different ways to 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 interpret his second son, but his black son has become sort of a badge of um, uh, a recognition motif amongst uh, neo-Nazis and Fourth Reich enthusiasts now. And so Villegut's sort of crazy mythology has not so much created, but has certainly influenced and supercharged uh, post-war uh, neo-Nazi uh, mythology to a to a greater degree than I would have thought, because. I would have thought that um, there was plenty of stuff in straightforward Nazi mythology to, uh, to, to cuddle to yourself. But apparently, Villegut is, he just has that effect on people. Well, I suppose that the, you know, the further from reality uh, you get, the more attracted you're going to be to, you know, the furthest fringes of things that sort of justify your faith demand. So if you're looking for uh, especially crazy things to believe to separate your tribe from the rest of the world, uh, those would certainly pop out on the shelf. Yeah, I, th I think that um, it may just be because his his version of the past is more colorful 
because uh, it, it has, you know, dwarves and, and giants and things in it. Maybe it's because it's, you know, it, it feeds that nerd compulsion to have the whole world's chronology written out before you get to play in it. Maybe that's why Irmanism is still uh, sort of popular. Um, he certainly, he certainly, I think, would make a good uh, a good visual in a in a Nazi occult uh, uh, movie or or whatever because he's a creepy old bald, um, probably heroin addicted, uh, drooling uh, clairvoyant. Uh, certainly, the um, his uh, house, as described by, and again, I think it was Schaefer's secretary. I think Schaefer personally never said anything about it. Was uh, sort of it smelled like opium and it was dark. Uh, dimly lit with lots of weird uh, hangings and, and decorations. I think that you could do a lot with Villagut that people have not done in terms of making um, uh, making him a, a bigger image of the Nazi occult. I think people prefer the sort of, you know, uh, either the, the the guy, you know, uh, Officer Tote from the uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark in his snap rim hat and his leather trench coat, or you would rather have uh, a guy who's out sort of out there in the in the field casting uh, magic like in uh, Hellboy. But I think that uh, Villagut is, you know, he's he's one of those guys that is is gonna is gonna keep paying you dividends the more you look into him because there is no bottom to that crazy. So if uh, you're at a, some sort of event and you run into someone who tells you that he's an earmanist, uh that's uh, bad news, and you perhaps want to uh, find another place to sit in the uh, hall. Yeah, I, th- I think that if someone comes up to you and says that they're an earmanist and wants to talk to you about Santur, the uh, black son of the Hyperboreans that um, you must conquer your urge to sit and take notes and uh, invent an engagement happening somewhere else. Uh, well, I think that wraps up our segment on Carl Maria Villagut. Next week, we're going to look at the Spear of Destiny. So until then, folks, uh, stay tuned for more occult craziness. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Dork Tower. Pro Fantasy Software. And Pelgrane Press. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Obey the rules of Jiang Hu at kenandrobintalkaboutstuff.com. Or subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time, and once again, we will talk about stuff. 